Welcome to the sermon podcast of Faith Lutheran Church in Oregon, Wisconsin, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ crucified and the promises of God that our faith clings to. For more information, visit us online at faithlutheranoregon.com. On this, the second Sunday after Epiphany, we see another manifestation or revealing of who Christ is and what he has come to do. It's his first miraculous sign, as John calls it, a sign that, that points us to something else. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And this first sign takes place at, of all places, a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Well, why a wedding and why is this the first? I mean, changing water into wine seems like a party trick compared to you know, healing the sick or raising the dead. But there's so much more to it. This is a really difficult uh, text to preach on because there's so much here. When John says he revealed his glory, he means it. This event sums up everything that Christ is and what he has come to do. And, and think about this. Just the fact that Jesus attends a wedding shows just how much he values the institution of marriage at all. I mean, just... Think of all the other things Jesus could be doing, sitting by the, the Jordan River, reading the scriptures, uh, sitting in the temple, uh, talking with the, the chief priests and the scribes, as we heard last week in our gospel lesson. Just the fact that Jesus attends a, a marriage shows that he considers it of highest importance. And Jesus attends the wedding because a marriage created by God is, well, created by God. It has his blessing. But in modern times, we've, we've really denigrated marriage. And, and I don't even have to talk about the rest of the world and how they've denigrated marriage. We've done this too. But the ancient Jews held marriage in high esteem. And these were occasions for celebration, even for reconciliation, and for families, even the entire community to come together, to set aside differences, to come together and be reconciled at a wedding. And these ceremonies would last for up to seven days. You know, today most couples want the service and the vows inside of God, which are actually the most important part, uh, to, to be over as quickly as possible. They can move on to the, to the reception where, where what, we have a couple of beers and, and we dance the chicken dance. <laughs> right? Nothing says this is important like the chicken dance. But at this wedding at Cana, they'd run out of wine. This is a major, major deal. So Mary comes to Jesus, and she tells him that she doesn't want the groom and the bride to be ashamed or uh, embarrassed for running out of wine because they're letting their entire family and friends, the whole community, down. And she maybe doesn't really know what she wants Jesus to do. She's never seen him do a miracle before. Again, this is his first miracle. Uh, maybe she wants him to do like we would do, you know, if we run out of beer for a party, you know, sneak off quietly to the store and go buy a few more bottles. Jesus says, though, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. And, and he's right. It's not Jesus' problem that the groom was lazy and didn't plan well enough. And when Jesus says, my time has not yet come, what he means is the crucifixion. The crucifixion is when he will be raised up above the earth and all people will see him and see him in his glory. 
the glory of the cross. And his point is that every sin has cost. The things that we do or don't do actually do matter. They do have cost. God doesn't do party tricks where he just waves his fingers and, and magically makes everything better. Rather, all things are restored only through the crucifixion. And so by performing a miracle, Jesus is doing something that he doesn't have to do. In other words, he's doing it by grace. And by, by doing it, by performing this miracle, he's committing himself to die on the cross. This miracle will be his vow to his bride that he is going to die for her. And his miracle that he performs is extravagant. There's no other way to put it. He changes six, six stone water jars, each holding 20 or 30 gallons apiece, into wine. Now think about this. There's five bottles of wine to a gallon. So this means that Jesus just gave them 900 bottles of wine. I mean, there's not even enough people in all of Cana to drink 900 bottles of wine. And on top of that, this is the best stuff. It's a total waste. Jesus has given so much to people who don't deserve it and who won't even appreciate it. They're going to throw, end up throwing most of it away anyway. When the master of the banquet brings the bridegroom to him and he says, everyone saves the best wine uh, or serves the good wine first and then when the guests have plenty to drink, uh, then the cheaper wine. You save the good wine till now. You know, I've always taken that uh, to be a compliment that the master's impressed. But after thinking about it more, I don't think so. Uh, the master thinks the bridegroom is a fool. What are you doing uh, getting so much wine? Why would you put it in these disgusting jars that you use for hand washing? Uh, and why in the world would you save the best for last? <clears throat> it's a total waste. Uh, and we're not told, but the groom you know, just has to be dumbfounded because he doesn't know what Jesus has done. He's got to be dumbfounded and speechless. You know, it's really kind of a humorous picture. But the guests, all they care about is that there's more wine. And it's even better now than it was before, and it's never going to end. And isn't this a great picture of marriage, of Christian marriage? The world is like the master of the banquet. The world looks at Christian marriage and says it's foolish. Why wait? Like wine, if it's good now, drink it now. Why wait until you're married? Why put so much emphasis uh, on marriage between one man and one woman? Why, if your marriage doesn't seem very fulfilling anymore, if your husband or wife just starts to be a bump on the log and, and looks like a disgusting hand-washing jar, why not just go find somebody else? If your spouse screws up, why forgive them? Just do what you want to do. Get even. Go find somebody else. And all of these temptations expose a deeper problem in us. Lust. We aren't content with what God gives us or the way he has given it to us. You know, we, we want everything to be without work or without waiting, or we want things out of the proper order. You know, we want to be thin and fit, but we don't want to exercise. We want to know how to do something, but we don't want to study. We want the blessings of marriage without marriage. We want the joy of sexual intimacy 
without marriage or without babies. And it's not that what we want are bad things. These are actually good things. Sexual intimacy in the proper context is a gift from God. But in wanting these things on our own terms, we desire the creation rather than the creator who gave them to us. And it's the love of them that's evil. If we love something more than God who gave it to us, or we love it in a way that God has not designed it, or we want something apart from, from how God gives it, or without the responsibilities God attaches to it, that's evil. But God has given us something so wonderful in marriage. Jesus, again, attends marriage. And make no mistake, he doesn't attend sleepovers. He blesses marriage. There is no blessing with fornication. And again, our sin actually has consequences. A couple who has no self-control and are, are not content to wait without repentance, that will have consequences later on in their life. If they're not content now with how God gives marriage, what other things will they not be content with? Not content with the declining physical appearance of their spouse as they age? Not content with their unique vocations and callings in the home as husband and wife? Constantly struggling and, and arguing then? Not content with their vocation as, as parents? So they either brush off children or they think that children aren't important enough to bring to God's house? Out of the proper order, they will never have enough. They will always be lusting after something more. And ultimately, without repentance, a couple in the sin of adultery is saying they aren't content with Jesus. Because marriage is a picture of the commitment, the union, the one fleshness between Christ and the church. But to actually not fornicate, to, to be chaste, as the Sixth Commandment puts it, that's a gift. To be chaste is to be pure to have the thing in the proper context, to reserve the gifts of marriage for marriage, that husband and wife each love and honor the other. And in so doing, we are honoring our own bodies as living sacrifices, as holy and pleasing to God. We're glorifying God. And it is actually good and satisfying because this is what we were made for. Unlike the emotional instability and chaos and pain that fornicators endure. I mean, there's a reason the world tries so hard to justify fornication, because they're trying to justify their guilt. Misery loves company. They think that if they can get everyone to do it, they'll feel better about their own bad decisions. And they look at us like we're missing out, but we have everything. We saved the best for last, and it's never going to end. Again, marriage is a reflection of Christ's marriage to the church. And just look. Just look at what Christ does for the church. St. Paul says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water in connection with the word. And he did this so that he could present her to, her, to, her, to himself as a glorious church, having no stain or wrinkle or any such thing, but so that she would be holy and blameless. Now, the church is not, was not, and has never been blameless. 
We have lusted after everything God has not given to us, and we have made other gods. Christ had no reason to stay with us, let alone die for us, give himself for us. He created marriage. He could have just as well uh, let us go and created somebody new. But Jesus does something that he doesn't have to do. He does it by grace. He covers up all the imperfections of his bride. He doesn't let her shame show. He cleanses her now with the ceremonial washing jar and wine, but with baptism and the Lord's Supper. And he presents her, us, to himself, even though we were awful, disgusting, and unchaste, as though we were, even though we were sinners, he presents us as though we had never sinned. As pure as though we had never been adulterated before. As holy and blameless. This is what God created marriage to be. To be a reflection of his love for us. And this changes our perspective. It allows me to actually be content. To be content with the way that God created marriage. To view marriage as objectively good and always worth it. For husbands and wives, uh, for husbands to love their wives just as Christ loved the church. As though she were absolutely perfect. To view children not as byproducts that are to be avoided until you have enough money, but as the natural and good results of love. And God will provide. And on the other hand, to be content even if troubles and hardships arise. Marriage doesn't mean everything will always be happy. But like love itself, and especially God's love, it's most pronounced and needed when things aren't happy, when things aren't going well. I love the way that our, our chief hymn put it earlier. And if thy home be dark and drear, the crews be empty, hunger near, all hope within thee dying, despair not in thy sore distress, Lo, Christ is there, the bread to bless, the fragments multiply. It's a picture of the widow in 1 Kings 17. The woman whose husband has died, and she and her son are about to have their last meal, a few bites of bread. They're prepared to die of starvation. They think this is it. But God sends the prophet Elijah, and through the word, he makes the bread multiply and it never runs out. This is what Jesus does. Through Christ, I, can never, I never run out of what I need. He makes me to have enough in whatever situation, not lusting for something God has not given me. It could be my current vocation. Maybe I am single, longing for companionship. Maybe I'm not married, but in a relationship, desiring the blessings of marriage. Maybe I'm in a marriage where my spouse and I have had some struggles lately. Maybe my home isn't as prosperous as I had, as I had envisioned or, or dreamed of, uh, whether that be financially 
or, or with children. If Jesus attends me in my life, in my vocation, he assures me that his grace will never run out. And he, what he has given me is enough for now. In the miracle of changing water into wine, Jesus does and fulfills what God has given marriage for, to be fruitful and multiply. Jesus literally makes water fruitful and multiplies it. And so too in your home, Christ is there to multiply the fragments, to bless and multiply. In Jesus' name, amen.